You know, one of the things I like about going to church here is that you can cry on the patio or that patio. That's not true of all the churches that I've been to or visited. More often than not, church patios after the service are a place to catch up, joyfully reunite, share stories, share photos, share recipes, share films, talk about sports, or talk briefly about how powerful the sermon was. And you know, that's how it should be. These are the everyday things of our life that keep us close to the ground of one another's lives. But you know, it's a gift to be able to fall apart a little at church, to weep, to have a little breakdown, to grieve. And I think in some places that feels awkward. It's embarrassing. Maybe we worry that we'll embarrass others. Maybe we worry they won't know what to say. Maybe we feel like we obligate them in some way. Maybe we feel like we make them sad because the assumption is that sadness or grief will steal away what is good about fellowship. But I like it when I can be out here after the service and there can be laughter and hilarity to my right and to my left. There are some people leaning in and there are a few tears and they're praying for one another, all happening within 10 or 12 feet of me on either side or out here. In our series, we've been looking at the spiritual formation of David over a lifetime. And we've come to the passage coupled with the passage with Jesus and Lazarus that clearly is going to lead us to talk about what is the role of loss and death and grief in our formation. You know, life is just full of loss. There's the loss of roles and identities and unemployment or retirement. There's the loss of divorce or empty nests, the loss of dreams or the closing of doors. There's a loss of confidence with failures, loss of love with breakups. And of course, the subject of our passages today, there's the loss involved in death. You know, probably the most helpful book I've ever read on death and suffering and loss was Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised. Some of you may know that book. Uh, Jerry Sitzer's story is devastating. He, a professor of theology at Whitworth College in the state of Washington, in 1991, he was driving back from an evening event on a two-lane rural road with his mother, his wife, and his four children. And a drunk driver hit them head-on at 85 miles an hour. And in an instant, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter, three generations. So although the book is an exploration of his loss, it's not limited to that. It's a meditation on what does one do in times of loss and grief and suffering, and in it he chronicles his first three years of dealing with his own grief and, of course, those of his surviving children. It's about as honest account as you'll ever read. But he writes early on, recovery from such a loss is a misleading and empty expectation. We recover from broken limbs, not amputation. Catastrophic loss, by definition, precludes recovery. It'll transform us or it'll destroy us but it will never leave us the same. And he adds, The sorrow I feel has not disappeared, but it has been integrated into my life as a painful part of a healthy whole. And this is the part I noted. It has enlarged my soul. The soul is elastic, he says. It's like a balloon. It can grow through suffering. Loss can enlarge its capacity for anger, depression, and anguish, which are all natural and legitimate emotions whenever we experience loss. But once enlarged, the soul is also capable of experiencing great joy, strength, peace, and love. So, 
As we look at these passages today about David's lament for Jonathan and Jesus' lament for Lazarus, we have to ask, how does this work? How can grief and suffering not destroy us, but enlarge our soul? In our passage today with David in 2 Samuel, we know that David's been on the run for most of 1 Samuel from King Saul, who is jealous of David's appeal and the prophecy of his kingship. And he's found temporary refuge with the Philistines, of all people, in the southwest near the Dead Sea, agreeing to fight their enemies, the Amalekites. So David's in the south, southwest of Jerusalem near the Dead Sea. Meanwhile, Saul is in the north at Mount Gilboa near Galilee, fighting the Philistines. And so in our opening of our patches today, a messenger comes from the north, where Saul was, to where David is, in Ziklag. And he brings news that Saul has been killed, along with his son Jonathan, David's best friend. And the story he tells is that Saul was mortally wounded by Philistine archers. He wasn't going to live. And he asks this messenger to take his sword and put him to death, lest he be desecrated by the Philistines when they actually arrive upon him. So after questioning the messenger a little bit, to be sure, David and his army, we are told, mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. And then David questions the messenger again. And he says, you know, how is it that you weren't afraid to actually kill the Lord's anointed? Now, if you were paying attention during the reading, David's response should have been disturbing. <laughs> Because he instantly has the messenger executed, who seemed to have been doing a good deed. He did what Saul asked him to do, and he's come to get, bring news of Saul's death to David. A full explanation of what's going on here historically would take some time, but suffice it to say that the messenger is lying. In the very last chapter of 1 Samuel, so basically the chapter before this one, the end of 1 Samuel, which by the way, 1 and 2 Samuel were just one long narrative originally. And because of the length of the papyrus or codex, they had to stop it somewhere. And so, But in that last chapter of Samuel, the narrator tells the reader another story. Sure enough, Saul was mortally wounded on Mount Gilboa. But in this account, Saul asked his armor bearer to slay him, not some Amalekite messenger who happened to be hanging around. The armor bearer refused. He would not kill God's anointed. And so we're told that Saul killed himself. He leaned upon his sword. This is probably the reliable account. Although David didn't know it, he just knew what the messenger had told him. But in asking a few more questions, he discovers that the messenger is an Amalekite, an historic enemy of Israel, who claims to have been a protected stranger in Israel. Israel allowed certain people to have a kind of foreigner status, but in which case he would have known Saul's anointing as king and his relationship with David. In other words, he's an opportunist. He saw a chance, whether he came upon the scene after Saul killed himself or was there watching it, he saw a chance to grab the crown off of Saul's head and the amulet off of Saul's arm and take it to David thinking that David would rejoice, that David's enemy has been killed and therefore the Amalekite would be richly rewarded for bringing him this news and in a sense crowning David. And so he lied in hopes of achieving favor in the new king's sight. David found him out. In other words, the Amalekite was trying to make a buck off tragedy. And that should sound quite modern to us. And then he mourns further, and in chapter 2, if we were to read it, he wrote a lament for Saul and Jonathan that he said should be taught to all people. 
The opening of that lament says, depending on your translation, Lord, your glory, your beauty, or your gazelle, which are all the same word, is slain in your high places. You know, David had a chance to kill Saul twice in 1 Samuel, and he didn't. For he believed that if God had anointed Saul, no matter how he had failed as a king, some mysterious purpose was being worked out in this. And so this is not a time of rejoicing for David, that his enemy, whom David never really considered an enemy, was dead. And so he mourns for Saul, for Jonathan, for Israel. It's a national tragedy. Death is the enemy. You know, death is three things, at least. Death is an enemy, but death can be a friend, and death can be a guide. But we begin with death as an enemy. It is an enemy. So why so? Why in this new covenant time of ours, post-resurrection, second coming is coming, Jesus has been resurrected, we know death is not final, why is it still the enemy? Why does Jesus, who knows he's going to raise Lazarus in two minutes, who knows that he is going himself to be raised at some point, who knows that he ultimately will be king, who knows that death will be overcome, why does Jesus weep? Why doesn't Jesus just come in and say, hang on everybody, don't cry, let's go to the tomb, I got something to show you. Why be such a downer? Why does Jesus weep? Well, he weeps because death is an enemy. Death is still opposed to everything that is good, and Jesus feels this deeply. You know, death is opposed to growth, obviously. It's opposed to awakening. It's opposed to creativity. It's opposed to being. Death is the most uncreative thing there is in itself. It's an undoer. Undoes birth, undoes life, undoes relationship, undoes communion. You know, for David, Jonathan was really his only friend. Jonathan didn't have to be his friend. I mean, Jonathan was the son of the king, the potential next king. But Jonathan was David's advocate. And Jonathan's death was the death of that one firm friendship. The thought of Jonathan lying lifeless was for him unimaginable, and the enemy was death. So those of you who have experienced a painful loss or separation from another, know that the cliche that part of us dies too when that happens, it is actually true. We lose a role as a son or daughter, maybe, as an employee, as a wife or husband. I may have mentioned it before, but you may know that Lewis and Tolkien and Williams and others in Oxford had a little group where they read each other's works and drank beer and hung out, and they were called the Inklings, and they would meet regularly. And Charles Williams, you know, a core member of that group, eventually died, and Tolkien said to Lewis, you know, I not only miss Charles, but I miss that part of me that Charles pulled out. So in death, we lose a part of ourselves, maybe a role that we have always been privileged to occupy. And so we ourselves are at a loss, in our loss. Of course, death is the most inevitable thing in life. Um, and someone, some people would say, well, it's the most natural thing in life. And of course, death in the food cycle is necessary and inevitable. The dying and renewing of crops and, and the cycle of life. But as people created in the image of God, we still know instinctually that there's something unnatural about death for humanity. That is why Jesus weeps. He knows that death is a destroyer of all that's good amongst God's people. So death is an enemy. Death is not a friend, but it can become a friend. But the loss of not only death, but our capacity to lament death is a danger. The death of our capacity to lament is an enemy. For death and the loss or threat of it, in some cases, is actually tied to injustice and oppression. Deaths sometimes occur because things are wrong. 
systems are wrong. The last few years, we've experienced a lot of anger and loneliness from the black communities in our country whose losses they feel basically go unmourned by the rest of the country. And there's no question, in spite of each individual case, that the fragility of their lives are linked to ongoing injustice, directly or indirectly. They are going to be more prone to loss because of the history in which they are embedded. To lament is to allow ourselves to open to those truths, to see where loss and death might be linked to injustice. Because lament is incipient action. Lament might be the beginning of action. It it creates maybe the recognition that some of our neighbors are going unloved. Sung Chan Ra, in his book on lamentation, says there are possibly two kinds of theologies in our communities. One is the theology of suffering. Among communities who have been traditionally disadvantaged and regularly have to face loss and lament. And then there are communities of celebration who can live a theology of celebration because they have the resources and opportunities as well as the expectations that protects them from lament. But if death and loss in many places is a result of injustice, of God's kingdom not yet born there, then lament can lead us to action against the enemy of God's kingdom. On the other hand, our resistance to lament, our inability to weep, to cry, to lament, can make us an ally of death because it allows us to be blind to those things. David does not turn his face away. He lets his lament remind him that there is evil in the world, that there are forces opposed to God. Death and lament can enlarge our souls to recognize what opposes God and to act for his kingdom. Death and lament can enlarge our souls to recognize what opposes God and to act for his kingdom. So death is an enemy, and we need to have a large enough soul to admit it, and it's an important part of our formation. But yes, it can become a friend. You know, The beauty of things often benefit from having a frame around them. The frame directs our attention to a part of life that is good and beautiful. Death demonstrates often the supreme value of something that is lost. It places a frame around it so that we notice now the good in contrast to death. Frequently occurs in memorial services, right? Or in the lead up to them as people gather together to reflect on a person's life. I went to one last week. It was in the Serbian Orthodox Cathedral in Alhambra, gorgeous place. And as each person got up and reflected on the life of uh, the man that had lived a long life, recognized his fierce loyalty to family and church, my friend turned to me and asked, how much time do you think you and I have to work up a legacy like that left? In other words, we recognized a really good life, and it made us want to lead one. I remember when my own father was dying we were uh, downstairs, and he was downstairs in a bed, and he was unconscious at this point. And there was a strange kind of movement between grief and a certain liveliness as we reflected on the goodness of his life. It was actually quite bizarre to be moving between those two in that place, in that moment. What death does and loss do is they suddenly clarify what's really valuable, right? An awful, sometimes awful, clarification occurs. And I, when I spell that word awful, it's A-W-E, awful. A clarification that is full of awe where we suddenly go, oh my gosh, this is what really matters, whatever this is. So death can enlarge our souls by helping us see again what is truly good. I remember I was on a three-week retreat, a three-week silent retreat. I don't know if I can recommend that. 
But I did get to see a, a, a therapist every day in the morning, a therapist slash spiritual director. And it was just a time of heavy grieving, you know, honestly. When you start digging into your life, there's a lot of stuff. And uh, I remember asking him, you know, when do you experience joy? And he said, usually after I grieve. Because joy in the scriptures is a matter of return. It's a matter of reunion. It's a matter of recognition or recognition of how good God said things were and how good they continue to be. So our capacity to lament is linked to our capacity actually to be joyful. It enlarges our soul for joy. I mean, can you imagine the joy after Jesus' lament and Lazarus' resurrection? Contrast of the two, death as enemy, leading us to what is good. And that brings me to the third way that loss can function in enlarging our soul. It helps us to recognize that there is such an enemy in the world. Death is our friend because it can lead us to appreciate what indeed is still good in ways that we might not have been large enough to take in. And finally, death is our guide. In the Divine Comedy, which is Dante's epic poem about a journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven, it begins on Good Friday in the year 1300. And the poet admits at the beginning that he is in midlife, in a dark wood, ruining his life, falling into a low place, experiencing death. And the poet Virgil, who arrives uh, after a thousand years, takes him on a journey. And it's going to go down before it goes up. They go into the circles of hell, those of purgatory. They witness how God's good gifts have been distorted among humans. And then they arrive at the first circle of heaven, finally. And it's Easter Sunday at that point. And Virgil, who was a noble pagan, that is to say not a believer, but wise, says, I can't take you any further. There's going to have to be another guy to take you into heaven. And so a woman named Beatrice meets Dante there and takes him the rest of the way to a vision of God, a perfect love, which the poet can't even express to us. So, you know, death and loss is like that. It ultimately leads us to the one real and lasting thing, love. That is to say, God. You know, it's as if death and loss are these fires that burn everything else up. They burn everything up. And, and the fire even burns itself up. <laughs> death is almost something that burns everything up, and then it burns itself up. Even the good things. Of course, one can't not think of the fires up in Napa and Santa Rosa, where homes have been completely burned. But if you've ever noticed, and I don't mean to make someone else's grief a symbol, but if you notice that when houses are completely burned, there is one thing that you usually see that still remains, and it's the foundation. The cement foundation doesn't burn. Sometimes that's all that's left. All things pass away. Even Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that good things pass away, right? He says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Wow. But love, he says, never fails. Or some translations say, love endures forever. So it turns out the opposite of death is not life. The opposite of death is love. So death becomes our guide by leading us to the one thing that remains standing, which is the opposite of death, love. And love turns out to be recreative because it was love that created this world, and it's love that one day will create a new heaven and a new earth. Love creates, that's what it does. It was Jesus' knowledge that such a foundation existed that allowed him to grieve. For if you can trust that such a foundation is there, you can fully move into grief. You can give yourself to engaging this present darkness if you know that you just can't fall below the foundation. It just won't happen. So it's not blessed are those who resist mourning, but blessed are those who mourn. 
for they will be comforted. Some of you know I'm a big Wendell Berry fan, and I think I've taught on the poem The Slip before. A slip is when a piece of, large piece of land gives way and falls into the river and is lost for farming and crops. And in the middle of the poem, Wendell Berry reflects, nothing having arrived will stay. The earth even is like a flower, so soon passes it away. And yet this nothing is the seed of all. Heaven's clear eye where all the worlds reappear, where the imperfect has departed, the perfect begins again its descent, its struggle to return, the good gift arrives again. So lament in the modern world is something we're reluctant to practice. We are tempted to bury our loss and grief in those of others because we fear it. We fear grief. We fear lament. And if we don't push it down, then many in our society are like the Amalekite messenger. They commercialize and package and commodify the loss of other people to make a buck for entertainment. In either case, our souls shrink by not engaging in lament. But we have the Jesus option. It was Jesus' knowledge that such love that allowed him to grieve was undergirded by a foundation that will always be there, that leads us to love, and that love will recreate in the nothingness that death brings. So some of you today are in the midst of loss and grief. Others of you have experienced loss in the past, but you may not have fully allowed yourself to grieve it, maybe because we fear it, and that's understandable. You worry that it will crush you. But we misunderstand the role of grief and loss if we think that. For lament enlarges our souls to recognize and resist evil, to feel the depths of goodness and joy in the morning when that comes, and finally, to know better the firm ground of love. So the question I have for us is, is there a loss in your life, the reality of which you just need to begin by accepting? Some grief or loss that has been pounding on your door, and you just need to let it in. If you do, I want you to do so in this company here, on this patio here, in God's temple, so to speak, so that you will know even as you open the door to loss and grief, you cannot fall below the foundation of love.